You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as always, by the great Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, Dan? Oh, it goes, uh, you know, midterm election week. Uh, so, you know, if our listeners love it when we talk about baseball, I, I feel like this is a good time to probably dedicate some quality time to talking about politics. I feel like that's uh, likely to be uh, non-contentious and uh, non-controversial and, and will bring the entire listenership together. You're shaking your head very aggressively. Your, your, your beanie just fell right off your head. You're shaking your head so <laughs> aggressively. Okay, no, in that case, we are not going to talk about midterm elections and I am not going to stare up at CNN on my screen. No, and I'm look. I haven't really talked about the the asshole Astros winning. So that's that. weeks ago. Live in the present, Leslie. Live in the present. All right. <laughs> uh, I'm just gonna stare up at my my little Vin Scully tribute in my house. So whatever anyway. allows you to stay safe. Yes. Well, this is. Let's start off with a programming note. This is going to be our last episode until. December, as we're going to take an extended break for the Thanksgiving holiday. Our next episode will be Friday, December 2nd. So enjoy this one and parcel it out if you would like. On the bright side, we have a a very long interview this week with the showrunner of a show that premieres next week. And then two weeks ago, we already had our interview with the uh, creators of Wednesday, which premieres on Thanksgiving. So really and truly. And we inter- did that interview on a Wednesday, too. It, we totally did. So so basically, while there will be no new TV's top five for the next two weeks, we've got you covered for your background on a couple of the biggest shows of the next two weeks. So all will be well. Yeah. So in short, you're welcome. Well, with that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five, leading off as usual with headlines. Number one. Hulu has renewed Chris Estrada's excellent comedy, This Fool, for a second season. And Apple has picked up Bad Sisters also for its second season. And a reminder, you can go back and listen to our quite excellent interview with Chris Estrada back in episode 182 from August 19th of this year. And by the way, this is episode 193. So it wasn't all that long ago that we had Estrada on the show. But yeah, watch this fool. Indeed. And it, it took Hulu long enough, but, you know, good for good for them, I suppose. Uh, and and the- good for, honestly, Latinx comedies or shows in general, because those, you know, as we've stated on the show before, those have a hard time getting renewed. Apparently, which is yeah, ridiculous. Weird. But what can you say? Um, yeah. And I've ca- talked to a couple of people who are somehow less enthusiastic about the Bad Sisters renewal. Uh, um, my editor, John Frosch, loved the first season, but didn't really feel a need for a second season because he felt like the first season was a pretty solid and contained story. So I don't know. <laughs> I'm still finishing up on that one myself. So who knows? I haven't even gotten to it, Dan. Oh, it's it, it's actually really good. Uh, but it's just Angie reviewed it, and as you may have heard and may hear again, there's an awful lot of TV. So, yeah. so anyway. should I be catching up on that one during the break? I mean, if you want to, I, I don't know. It's uh, it, it's sort of a it is a prickly, tonally interesting comedy that, for some reason, a lot of people are still calling a drama because it's an hour long. So yeah, but it's got a it's got a great cast. It's uh, got a fun premise. It's got a a really good tone about it. Um, so, but again, yeah. that's well. You that's haven't convinced the- me. You haven't convinced me on that yet. But I will say I've been rewatching um, a show on Freebie, Freebie called High School. <laughs> 
which also I believe is in need of renewal along mm-hmm. with uh, a league of their, their own on Amazon and uh, Mo on Netflix. Those are the the things that I am repeating over and over again, Arya Stark like um, to try to get renewed. So anyway, continuing in news for shows on the move. The Jessica Chastain and Michael Shannon-centric George and Tammy limited series has moved to Showtime. It was originally supposed to air on Spectrum, which always confused people, and then on Paramount Plus and Paramount Network. So the thing will now air on Showtime, and the premiere will air concurrently on Showtime and Paramount Network behind a new episode of Yellowstone, which is very popular, on Paramount. Yeah, that's an interesting move. Obviously, Spectrum Originals got out of the original space after Catherine Pope departed for Sony. She's now the president of that studio. There's been layoffs going on over there. She restructures what that uh, independent studio is going to look like. So in the meantime, you've got some of these originals that are struggling to find new homes. And this honestly was the first move by Chris McCarthy since he inherited Showtime. We talked about how David Nevins is stepping down from oversight of that cable network as he leaves all of Paramount Global behind and look in favor of his next chapter. So this was a move by Chris McCarthy saying, we're going to put high-end stuff on Showtime, but we're also going to sample it on our big, broad network, Paramount Network, behind our biggest hit, Yellowstone. So we're going to drive people, use people from the free TV platform that is Paramount Network to get them to watch Showtime, which you have to pay for. And if you're not paying for Showtime, then eventually you can watch the whole thing on Paramount+. Plus. So it's basically supporting that that whole ecosystem. And it's the way that these companies really should be working and and some of them I mean, look at how been, hbo max is doing it yeah hbo max well hbo max is obviously benefiting it but also nbc has aired a couple things that were uh that were peacock originals you've seen some random things from other outlets in the Viacom reasonable doubt which is an onyx show that aired on hulu they aired the pilot for that on abc on the thursday night block where scandal used to air because that show is executive produced by Kerry Washington, and they went did a bunch of live tweeting as, as well to support that. So, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, you should be using bigger platforms to support your upstart platforms. So, I mean, this is honestly what should have happened during the pandemic when everyone was scrambling for content, but nobody wanted to risk putting all of your premium shows that you're asking people to pay to watch up on broadcast for free, because who would have thought that it would have had a trickle-down effect? Like, oh, I really like this show. Maybe I should be paying for Hulu. Definitely was a thing that people could have done and a thing that, you know, back in the strike days of the aughts, uh, you know, there was a little bit of that as well. There was sort of famously or notoriously the the trimmed down PG version of Dexter that aired on CBS. That was that was a, a weird idea. And I don't know what impact it had, but it was it was still the kind of thing that really and truly everyone should be doing more frequently because the ecosystem is becoming more blurry and the lines are becoming more blurry. So might as well. Yeah. And I mean, especially at a point that we're at like today where all of these streamers, their big mandate, like Netflix, Amazon is to go broad. You're basically making broadcast shows on a streamer and now you're putting ads on them. So these streamers are literally making broadcast shows. And now if you've got a streamer that that's owned in house, you can why it, it, you should be doing this anyway? I'm talking in circles, so move on. <laughs> on the new series front, Mara Brock Akil has set an adaptation of Judy Bloom's Forever as her first show under her overall deal with Netflix. Writer Shay Serrano is teaming with Dave exec producer Max Searle to bring a reggaeton comedy called Neon, 
also to Netflix. And in syndication news, the Kelly Clarkson show has been renewed through 2025. Over at ABC, the network has confirmed that the upcoming fifth season will be the last for DJ Nash's family uh, melodrama A Million Little Things. I am still vaguely amazed that that show has gotten five seasons, but I also know a few people who really enjoy it, so who am I to quibble? Uh, <laughs> at Amazon, the second season of Carnival Row, a show that there's at least a 50% chance you forgot had a first season, well, the second season will also be its last, perhaps because you already forgot that there was a second season. If you're forgetting, it's the show that starred Cara Delevingne and Orlando Bloom and featured lots of screwing fairies. Yeah, and that Carnival Row, I, if memory serves, it might be on its third showrunner heading into season two. Um, yeah, some behind-the-scenes stuff. It was an expensive one. It last aired in 2019. Obviously, pandemic delays are, are, are part of all of this stuff, but a creative shuffle behind the scenes doesn't help matters. So three years between seasons, that's expensive to market and a show that you probably already spent a lot, way too much money on that pe people, well, honestly, it just didn't cut through to begin with, but... Hey, Amazon loves renewing shows before they premiere because it's part of their PR strategy on some of these big, bold shows, even though they're creatively a mess behind the scenes. And most of their high profile shows change showrunners anyway. So great question mark. I don't know. But for a million little things, honestly, you know, I, I share in your, your surprise that it lasted this long. But, it, you know, the other piece of this is that this show was a direct result of the broadcast thirst after This Is Us. It broke out in a big way. So this came out a year after This Is Us premiered, so it kind of makes sense it's ending a year after This Is Us ended. So, But of the, but of those shows, it's the one that clearly lasted the longest, and, I mean, good for them, I guess. I mean, <laughs> were there others that even lasted? No, there were, most most of them, I believe, were one and done. There were or a they few. were N pilots that didn't go. Yeah, NB NBC had like four or five itself, and oh, they didn't yeah, that's right. happen, and... Yeah. So anyway, yeah. Uh, all the ones that were that they produced in house at Universal Television didn't work, but the one from that was owned by Twentieth or Disney is the one that worked. The original that started it all. Anyway, I digress. Elsewhere in development news, AMC has opened a writers' room under its script to series model for a serialized TV adaptation of George Clooney's Good Night and Good Luck, with Clooney attached as an executive producer. Dan, what do you think about this one? I don't exactly know why, but, uh, you know, like, I don't know why you need to use good night and good luck as the quote unquote brand around it. If you want to make a, a story about Edward R. Murrow and Joseph McCarthy and all of that. Um, sure. Absolutely. Fine. There's, there's a lot, there's a lot of meat on those bones. Uh, it's just the question of whether or not good night and good luck as a quote unquote brand really means anything, but you know, a period drama about early TV news and the Red Scare and all of that, totally. I'm there for it. Why not? Yeah, that, that seems to fit right in with with uh, what we've come, come to expect from AMC. Well, that and a shit ton of Walking Dead shows. <laughs> Over at HBO, The Sympathizer, featuring Robert Downey Jr. in multiple roles, has set its core cast with Sandra Oh and Kyu Chin joining in key roles and Lin-Manuel Miranda. You might have heard of him. I mean, he, of course, is one of the stars of HBO's His Dark Materials. That would be what you would have heard of him from also. Absolutely. Which also um, is coming back for its third and final season very soon. And, of course, the classic medical drama Dr. Facehands on NBC. Um, anyway, he will Wait, be joining what? the cast. Dr. Facehands. Wait, what's that one? 
I, I have no idea what, what joke this is. <laughs> it, <laughs> it was everybody's name for the Stephen Pasquale uh, multiple personality uh, medical drama. Do no drama. harm. Yes, do no harm. Exactly. Do- Dr. Uh, because, face hands. Because if you go and you look at its poster, <laughs> the key art featured Dr. Face hands. So. Dr. Face hands. Well, if we're talking about bad key art, all I can remember is that that awful medical drama that seemed to last like more seasons than anyone ever expected to on NBC, where Night it's shift. like it's a medical, yeah, and these guys in in the middle of a hospital on a motorcycle or something. Like, whenever I think of key bad key art, I think of that and and Alan Seppenwall's fascination with that terrible poster. I don't know how exactly Alan co-opted all fascination with it, but yes, uh, no, that is. I mean, the, regular tweeter about the terribleness of the key art here. The night shift, uh, um, yeah. Well, basically, apparently, NBC had a very strange and possibly very high key art department uh, back in the day. So good on them. Anyway, I, I never actually got around to saying what he's actually going to be in. Uh, His Dark Materials and Dr. Facehand star Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> he's going to be part of the cast of the Percy Jackson television series over at Disney+. Plus. So now you know. Yeah, well, but I just want to go back to talking about bad key art for a second. Has anyone else besides me noticed the Goldberg's key art? I mean, obviously no relation, but like they basically just airbrush updated headshots onto the existing posters. It's like it's the cheapest thing I've ever seen. It's the, it, it, it's hilariously bad. The number of strange decisions that the Goldberg's is making as it limps, stumbles, flails its way towards an eventual conclusion. A little bit strange, but. Are you still watching, Dan? Uh, I watched the first episode. I I watched all the way through last season. I watched the first episode of this season to see how they were going to handle Jeff Garland. They handled it very, very silly, silly, silly in a silly way, however you want to put it. Uh, And I'm I'm sort of backed up on the other seven episodes. So I wouldn't say that I've quit so much as I've fallen behind. Yeah. I stopped watching that when Adam F. Goldberg moved to Sony and wasn't creatively involved anymore. So it's been a minute. And then, yeah, I don't I don't think I watch anything on broadcast anymore. Not one. It used to be Grey's Anatomy is the last one, and I quit that after the pandemic season. I'm mostly not caught up on any of my broadcast shows, but I still watch a bunch of the Fox Animation stuff. I still watch uh, Abbott Elementary. I still, I still watch a, a pretty fair number of comedies on broadcast these days. Uh, but at this exact moment, I don't think I watch a single broadcast drama and I, I don't know that I miss watching a single broadcast drama. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Now we're just watching them on streaming. Indeed. <laughs> anyway, up second this week. Number two. This is a conversation that we've had rather frequently and with much speculation and this is not the way that we were saying that this was likely to go a couple weeks ago. Netflix is solidifying Ryan Murphy's future at the streamer. They've given a two-season renewal for Monster, which apparently was a was an anthology all along, and a second season pickup for The Watcher, which apparently was definitely not a limited series all along. So, yeah, talk about where things are and how we ended up here when just two months ago we were like, yeah, he's probably going to end up going back to going back to his roots and not staying in Netflix. I still think that that's the case. I still think Ryan will Ryan Murphy will go back and sign a new overall deal with Disney and reunite with Dana Wald. And especially now that that she's running things over there following the surprise ouster earlier this year of Peter Rice. But 
going back to the Netflix piece of this, I mean, put yourself in the Netflix position when you're reading and you're finding out from the press, mind you, that Ryan Murphy, who you're paying $300 million to as part of a, a an as part of a game-changing $300 million five-year overall deal, has set two new shows at his former home, Disney, where, with spinoffs of American uh, of the American Story franchise. So you, now you've got American Love Story and American Sports Story, and you're paying Netflix, and, and you're Netflix paying Ryan Murphy millions of dollars to make shows for your former home. That's not a great feeling, I'd imagine. So the response here is... Net Ryan Murphy finally delivered two quote unquote hits. And I'm going to do put the put the bunny ear quotes on, on these because we as we know, Netflix doesn't release traditional viewership data. But if you read the tea leaves among the billions of minutes, you know, they're positioning both Monster and The Watcher as hits on that platform. So extending those is going to guarantee you that you will remain in business with Ryan Murphy after his overall deal expires in July 2023. If Murphy decides to stay at Netflix. Great. You got all these shows in the works with him and who knows what else he's going to do. But these are the big broad hits that Netflix wanted him to deliver to that platform when they paid him that big money. So why do I think that this is important still is, well, I mean, I think he's, even if Murphy decides to leave for Disney next year, the bigger thing is he's already got American Sports Story, American Crime Story, American Horror Story, the American Horror Stories anthology on Hulu. Plus, he revived Feud, which had been dormant for a few years. He's obviously got the 9-11 franchise uh, over at Fox. All of these up as part of his carve-out from Disney. But basically, in short, this is a way for Netflix to, to ensure that if Ryan does leave for Disney... They're going to have the same thing coming back that Disney had while he was at Netflix. He, they will keep him on the platform even if he decides to go back to Disney. So Netflix will continue to get something out of that relationship with Ryan, even though he may go elsewhere. So it's kind of the same thing, but in reverse. So it, it's super interesting to me. Carve-outs within carve-outs within carve-outs. Yeah, so he's got a carve-out from his Netflix deal to do stuff for Disney, and now, if he goes back to Disney, he's going to have a carve out to keep doing stuff for Netflix. <laughs> so you get what you give, I guess. But e either way, you know, it's still it, it's an extension of, of the Ryan Murphy brand for the streamer at a time where Murphy's future is kind of up for debate. I think it's interesting, though, that you that you still remain not convinced, but you still remain, I don't know optimistic that he's going to return to his roots, maybe not optimistic. Regardless, you still think that's the direction things are going to go. Whereas my immediate reaction was this is sort of the start of Netflix trying to lock Ryan Murphy back down. But, you know, those are those are kind of the two most obvious possibilities. But more than anything, as you say, it's their way of making sure that that what looked like a deal that was going to have yielded absolutely nothing three months ago suddenly now looks like a deal that yielded two very large quote unquote hits. And so that, you know, who wants, who could want anything more than that out of their, however many figures that contract was, which was a lot. <laughs> yeah. 300 million. Oh, that's, that's, that's a lot for a Jeffrey Dahmer miniseries and the watcher, but if it's multiple more seasons of, monster colon the ted bundy story and monster colon the rupert murdoch story then you know monster colon the elon musk no too soon okay i'll stop yeah too too ongoing but anyway <laughs> uh 
But but yes, so interesting news and yay for turning random shit into anthologies for no particular reason. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Up third. Number three. We talked earlier about a couple shows that we've been waiting on to get renewals that did get renewals. But last week, part of the biggest news was a fairly big show that did not get a renewal. It was announced that HBO will not be making a fifth and final season of Westworld, even though apparently that's actually what creators Jonah Nolan and Lisa Joy wanted. So what happened? What happened is no one fucking watched. <laughs> this. The price tag on Westworld has gone up every season and going the other way has been the viewership. So it really is that simple, according to my sources. So, you know, the what's interesting to me is this is just another one of this is another way that Warner Brothers Discovery is saying no to J.J. Abrams after they, you know, everyone in town wanted to work with him back in 2019. And he signed a huge $250 million deal to stay with Warner Brothers. But, you know, the original deal for for Westworld, uh, creators Lisa Joy and Jonah Nolan had originally conceived a six season plan when Joy and Nolan moved their overall deal from Warner's to Amazon a few years ago. They included a carve-out. And what's a carve-out? It's basically an exception to the deal. It's saying, we're going to allow Lisa Joy and Jonah Nolan to continue to work as showrunners on Westworld, even though they are going to be creating new projects for Amazon. So you, might part remember of that, just, you might remember discussions of carve-outs as recently as two Ryan minutes Murphy, ago in yeah. the last segment. Right. I mean, just to reiterate, but like, <laughs> you know... All I was doing was thinking of how confused anyone would have been if they only had gotten the definition of carve out in this segment, having right. just done the previous segment. Whereas I trust that all of our listeners have been listening for all 190 some odd episodes and they know and they totally know what carve outs are. Right. Well, I mean, the difference here is it's rare that when you get a carve out that you can continue on as showrunner. So, for example, Shonda Rhimes, when she left Disney for Netflix, yes, she has a carve out to continue on as exec producer of Grey's Anatomy. What it doesn't include is writing for Grey's Anatomy. So she can continue to exec produce and be involved however she wants as, as an executive producer, but she's not going to be writing any more scripts for that or Station 19 or anything else in that verse. So... That's why I, I'm specifically interested in the, the carve out here for for Lisa Joy and Jonah Nolan. So they were originally the idea was for it to go six seasons. After season four aired, they spoke with one of our colleagues, Abby White, about what their plans and their hopes were for the future. Because season four, this is the first season that Westworld didn't get renewed early on during its run or before it even premiered as it had in the past. So it was truly on the bubble this season. And in, and in interviews, they had said, we just want one more season. They're, that's basically an admission that says, we know we're not going to get to six, but let us just get one more season out of this. So the big difference here is when you go back and look, you know, look, to really, really understand what's going on here, it, it's easiest to go back to the start. Westworld was always going to be a huge swing for HBO. It was picked up to pilot back in late 2013, ordered to series a year later, was supposed to premiere in 2015. It attracted a big A-list cast. We wrote a couple of stories at the time about how everyone was drawn to this because you could play multiple characters with different personalities because you're playing robots. And when you get killed off, you are easily come, you can easily come back in a different role. It's really creatively fulfilling. So after you, you, 
they put together this really incredible cast. Production was halted midway through to allow Joy and Nolan time to catch up on the convoluted scripts. Season one finally premiered in late 2016 and cost $100 million. That is high by 2016 standards, obviously a bargain for today. But for the time, it proved worth the investment. The first season averaged 12 million viewers with delayed and multi-platform viewing. Remember HBO Go? That was the thing that they measured back in the, at the time. Fast forward now to season four, and when factoring in delayed viewing, and that's part of the reason that HBO took some time to give in making a decision about the renewal or the cancellation, they said, okay, maybe people just want to wait until the entire series is out and binge it all in one sitting. So they waited and waited and after the the finale dropped, and they waited to see what, what the delayed viewing was going to be, and it just wasn't there. Season four of Westworld tumbled to an average of four million viewers, including multi-platform, compared with 12 million from season one. So you get 10 episodes for season one that cost you $100 million, and you average 12 million viewers. Season four averaged four million viewers, the, for eight episodes, it's two less, and the price tag soared to north of $160 million. So by comparison, 2022 standards, House of the Dragon cost $125 million to make and delivered 29 million viewers per episode with multi-platform returns. So it's basic math. Price high, viewership low, you're gone. That's it. To to me, it's I I understand totally the reasons for its renewal, and I'm actually tremendously renewed there, uh, renewed relieved because there were very few shows that as reliably infuriated me and tantalized me, and never in any point fulfilled the things I was looking for in a TV show. Now, guess what? It's not all about me, and I know that lots of people, you know, were perfectly happy with the last couple seasons, and I feel bad for those people. Mostly, it's just interesting because this is just really not the HBO way. It's it's not what HBO does with big-name showrunners, with expensive shows. Not just that. It, Westworld was a show that was a reliable Emmy performer. It wasn't necessarily as huge as it was in the first couple seasons when it was yeah. getting nominated for the big things. I but, think collectively, it got more than 50 nominations yeah, across which, three seasons. Which is a ton. I mean, that's that's just a lot. And, and generally in the major categories. Towards the end, it was mostly in the technical categories, but even still, that was always good for, you know, six to eight to ten nominations for HBO's bottom line. And then, yeah, to, to not let the creators finish it on their terms is just not traditional HBO MO. And if that's going to be the MO of the Zaslav administration, I think people will take that under consideration. Uh, on the other hand, I find it interesting because it actually is a big cut. It's This is not one of those uh, we're axing a bunch of little vulnerable shows from minority communities that cost pennies apiece where we're not actually making any real impact on the bottom line. This is a, this is a major cancellation and a major savings of money. So, uh, you know, it's, it's almost reassuring for them to do something that is that is this big and this huge a hack rather than doing the death by however many paper cuts uh, almost all inflicted on you know under underserved and also to some degree underwatched shows so that those are the ways that I look at it yeah and i mean i'm not going to defend 
you know, the cancellation here, but I am going to say that it was not part of the David Zaslav cost-cutting measures. And, he, you know, if you looked at the recent earnings reports at, over at Warner Discovery, they're not great. But he did increase the amount of cutbacks that he was going to be making from $3 billion to $3.5 billion. But this, this decision had nothing to do with a cost savings. They already had the carve-out to do these, to do future seasons. But they basically decided, like, look, you can't get the costs down on these shows, right? It was going to probably face another creative reset and visit another world as part of Westworld, right? Like, go back and look at the movie and you can kind of get the the larger idea for how many different worlds you're going to you're gonna get to see, right? So if you can't get a price tag down on this show to where it it warrants the viewership, I mean, it, it, it's basically if you look at the way Netflix and all the other streamers look at the shows and make renewal decisions, it's is the viewership there? Does the cost justify the viewership or is that money better spent on other new programming that could get people in the door? And HBO decided that the answer was the latter. You know, and in terms of making cuts on some of the smaller, lesser watch shows, I think you're, you know, you're subtexting here the Gordita Chronicles at HBO Max, for example. Also, they cut the kids and family the, division. Yeah, exactly. That's a, I, I meant even honestly more of that. You know, they they were cutting a lot of they were cutting a lot of little things, which add up obviously. But anyway, right, because I'm, they were changing <laughs> the business model, or they were looking to, you know, to, you know, they don't need a kids and family division when they've got you know, uh, like Adult Swim and Cartoon Network as part of their portfolio. That's like, it, there's redundancy there, right? Why do you need to have a kids and family division at HBO Max when you've literally got one of the best known kids and family brands with a full executive team over there? You know what I mean? It's like, just use content that they're developing and, and have it all feed into one ecosystem. Don't have the overlap, right? I mean, I don't know. Uh, and that's, I think, part of the reason that you're, you know, you've seen some of the cutbacks at, at HBO Max where you've got, you still have Sarah Aubrey overseeing originals, but now Francesca Orsi is also working on stuff for, you know, for HBO. And then you've got a shared development team on, I think, I forget if it's the comedy or drama side, but they're basically trying to to make it a little bit more kind of focused like Disney where you have one larger content group overseeing everything and directing traffic for the platforms. So it's interesting. And the other piece, too, is, you know, with, with Westworld, Lisa Joy and Jonah Nolan, like I said, they're based at Amazon with a nine-figure overall deal of their own. They're focused on on the peripheral. Plus, they've got the video game adaptation of Fallout that they're steering. That's a, Those are two very, very big lifts. And obviously, the first one of those is out already. I think it's, as far as I know, it's still awaiting a, a word on its, its renewal. I'd be shocked if, if Amazon canceled this one because they don't really have a penchant for doing that with some of these big tentpole shows. But yeah, I mean, it, it's, you've got two showrunners that are pretty prolific that are taking on big ventures and one of them, no one's watching. I mean, and how, how do we know how many people are watching the other one, the peripheral on Amazon? I don't know. I mean, is anyone talking about it, Dan? Not much, not much that I've seen. Uh, and definitely not on a week to week basis. I feel like there was some talk about it initially, but yeah, who knows? We don't have a clue. Yeah. So Westworld won't get to six seasons. Pouring one out for Westworld, but can't say where I'm really surprised. Up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. Number four. Our guest this week is Taffy Brodesser Ackner, who makes her TV writing producing debut with Hulu's FX produced limited series, 
Fleischman is in trouble based on her debut novel of the same name. Before Fleischman, which premieres on November 17th, Professor Ackner was an acclaimed reporter best known for writing profiles running in publications ranging from GQ to ESPN the magazine to the New York Times. Welcome to the podcast, Taffy. I am so happy to be here. So you've been promoting this book now and now this series also for basically the past three years, and you've given countless interviews in that time. So as somebody who has conducted countless interviews on the other side yourself, have you gotten over the self-consciousness of being the subject of the interview rather than the conductor of the interview? Not even a little bit. I. It's not the self-consciousness. It's remembering that the thing I say is not something I'll be able to unsay. Like the fact that you, that in the interviews I do, which are for print, like nobody ever sees it. Nobody ever sees that I'm like eating and talking. Nobody sees how I'm dressed. And here I can't, it's funny. I can't keep it in my head that the things I'm saying are the record and I now realize something about the interviews I did, which is they couldn't keep it in their heads either. And it feels like, is any of this ethical or fair? <laughs> I'm having a little bit of a crisis about it. Have you gotten to the point or have you always been at the point where when you hear the words come out of your mouth, you immediately know if you've given someone their lead? You, you immediately know if you've given someone their background color for the feature? I have said things like, that would be my lead if I were you. And they always include it, which I respect. <laughs> there was even like a Cosmo profile of me that was called Taffy Burdester Ackner really, really, really wanted to write this profile. <laughs> and it's fair. Like, go for it. Like, there's this, this is a this is a sport I participate in and I am fine uh, losing. <laughs> I, but it's also when when someone when you hear it and you know that that's the lead and you, you know it's like boom there it is I know you're, you're like always oh, I can your relax I can yeah, relax like, right there like, it is thank you so relieved thank you thank you sir thank you sir for doing that I'm happy or when you have um, you know leads so often have this um, obligation to be like a microcosm of the whole thing and sometimes. More often than not, I'm wrong about what the lead is. It's the kicker that I always know when I hear it. And then you work that's backward. Fair. That's That tracks. I can't do it that way, though. I always, not that I'm a feature writer. I'm, as a reporter, it's always the inverted pyramid. So, right. But anyway. Right. I, it's a very different thing. It is, yes. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, in, in terms of reporting, I always like to start our interviews by going back to the beginning. So when I reported about the show, an ABC signature acquiring the rights to the book. Right. We all described it as that, the, that there was a bidding war. I mean, what was, can you talk about what that experience was like for you finding yourself in the middle of a TV bidding war? Uh, yes. I like, I like bidding war more than auction because it's, it's dramatic. There's war. Um, it when, when my book first started getting sort of exposed to the rights world, um, very few people were interested. There were only two or three people interested. And I remember thinking how sad that was, that like this book isn't plotted enough and nobody's going to like it. 
But then what happened was, I think, and I think if I'm if I'm being a reporter about it, I think that the reaction to the book came from the fact that I was writing about a middle age, like one of the characters is literally a middle-aged agent. Like I think so many people saw themselves in these characters who were in a position to bid for things. Meaning it wasn't an obvious thing. It wasn't, it, it didn't have a plot that you could necessarily think would be compelling on an everyday basis. But I do think, and I was wrong about that, by the way. Now I know enough about TV writing that I was wrong about that. And um, there's plenty of, listener, there is plenty of plot in Fleischman is in Trouble. I promise. Please watch it. Um, and suddenly the week the week it went on the bestseller list people were so interested in it all of a sudden and suddenly we started hearing about all the from all these people um and i was already on a story i was on a story about marianne williamson and i was going to new hampshire to i know i was going to new hampshire and i told my agents please only put me with people like, please, I, I'd love to talk to everyone, but you could tell them I'm back at work. I would like to speak to the people that you recommend I speak to. So it didn't feel like a bit, it didn't feel like anything other than just people wanting to talk. And you, you're in a business where there's so many people who just want to have a conversation with you. And a lot of them were writers who wanted to write it, like people who wanted to turn it into animation. Like there were so many strange conversations around it. Um, that I, I just was like, you know, this is a very amusing thing that I hope becomes a, a vehicle for the payment of my children's camp tuition. Like that was, that was my big hope. It is always my big hope because I feel like we all know enough to get through our lives, but for some reason, camp tuition always takes me by surprise. And then I met the people that I ended up going with um, Sarah Timberman and Susanna Grant. I f like fell in love with them immediately. They said, you know, this is, this is like a really voicey thing. I don't think anyone else could, could write it. And my vanity was, was taken. I was like, you know what? Maybe you are right. And I went back and in the continuing conversations I was having with other people, when I told them that, I think at one point there were 24 bidders. And yeah, it was it was like a really, I mean, some better than others, some bigger than others, some more serious than others. But but like a full 10 of them fell away when they heard that, that I was interested in writing it myself, that I was interested in being a part of it, which, which was interesting to me. Um, it's always been interesting to me, especially in like follow-ups where you have general meetings where people are so interested in your intellectual property, but they're talking to the person who made the intellectual property and they're not interested in your new ideas. They don't ever say to you like, so what do you want to do next? They say, do you have another book coming out? It's so interesting to me. Anyway, um, I'm still answering so many questions that you haven't asked, but I'm going to get back to the one you did, where the answer is, it was very wild and it was very weird and it was kind of crushing. Um to real like I really had this moment where I realized that that this might work out that this is going this is going to work and it was like a real again I wrote Fleischman is in trouble 
the year before to make camp tuition, to be like, I don't know if I can write a novel, but maybe I'm a well-known enough journalist that someone will pay me camp tuition for this book. Um, I feel like I'm not supposed to talk about money so much, but like journalists talking to each other, not about money means they're lying, means they're just like performing something. That's how I feel. Anyway, um, I never, once I spoke to Sarah and Susanna, I did not think there would be anyone else in my life. They said, when we were talking about what it could be, could it be a, a movie or could it be, um, or could it be a series? Their answer was, well, you want to write it yourself. What do you want your life to look like? No one else had ever asked me that question. Like in all of the mentors I had, all of the like people in my life, it was always about getting to the next thing. It was never about what do you want it to be like to do this thing? And I said, I just want to be kind of alone in a room writing. And that's what they gave me. I was really, I was, I was so lucky. Well, I want to go back to you saying that when things got to the point where you'd found sort of the right home, that it was crushing. Because I, yeah, I like because I had I, an inverse reaction to success. Have has that happened to anyone you've ever? Have, <laughs> are I, you only happy? <laughs> no, no. I was I was going to observe that while it was perhaps the most Jewish sentiment ever expressed on this podcast ever, it was an entirely relatable <laughs> sentiment to me. So I wanted you to talk a little bit more about that feeling of the happiest moment of your life, maybe also being a moment where you were profoundly uncomfortable with it. I think the only thing I'm good at writing-wise, um, I don't think I'm the best reporter. I don't think I'm the best at structure. I think that the thing that I'm best at is acknowledging that your feelings don't always make sense. And it's a thing I learned from doing journalism. I went to school for, um, I went to school for, for screenwriting. I went to NYU. And because I was not immediately successful. I felt that the market was telling me what I was worth. And I ended up at a job at a soap opera magazine where I would write profiles. Um, and then I ended up in mainstream magazines writing profiles. And you're obligated to tell the truth. And only when I read journalism or only when I experienced real life and I was under that obligation of the truth, did I ever hear, did I ever have to reconcile the fact that not all feelings make sense? That sometimes it's, you know, it's the, sometimes, I mean, sometimes it's the triumph that makes you miserable. Sometimes it's love that makes you lonely. And people tell you those things and it doesn't make sense, but it's true. So when I went back to screenwriting, when I went back to novel writing, which I didn't go back to, I just one day sat down, I was already, my muscles of that were already strong, that I already knew that a thing that should make you happy doesn't. And I'm very comfortable with that emotion. I am, I mean... If I don't know if you read the book. I don't, I don't know if you've watched the series. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but it's a book about, like, there's one person who has two different nervous breakdowns. It could be it could be said that I made a character that looked exactly like me, so you wouldn't necessarily see that the character who was exactly like me was the other one. Um, and I have always had an inverse reaction to success 
to the point where three of my friends have checked in with me today to see, like, how are you doing after that wonderful premiere? Like, are you okay? My sisters and my mother, like, they all know. I don't know why I'm like this. I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm Jewish. Like, you know, such it's not a such small portions thing. It's a, it's a like through the through the Rubicon of an identity shift that you get so if you're a profile writer, you get so used to knowing who you are the, yourself so that you could have some self-awareness that when who you are changes as it has for me in the past few years, the self, having that self-awareness as you go through makes may, may make you a little insane. I don't mean to complain. <laughs> no, but it's, but, it, but it's true. And I've heard this from other writers too, especially on the TV side, that, you know, sometimes when you get a show picked up, it's like being beaten to death by your dream. Right. You know? And that's a, a common right. refrain among TV writers. So, And like, look at us. We're all so scrappy. And we're all just striving and we're all, and when we say we all, I am saying me, petty and jealous of other people. What ha- Like, what do you do if you have to stop running? Like, I think a lot of that, the, the sort of, um, the sort of pandemic breakdown was what, what do you do if you're no longer running? Like there were people who were fighting for their survival, but 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 next up, there was a class of people who could no longer strive. What do you do when you're, you've built your life on striving? I only ever wanted to be someone who made my living as a writer. And when I was a freelance writer, that amounted to being on, I'm not joking, 11 stories at once. It amounted to writing. When I, when I wrote the novel, it was because... Um, Willie Staley at the Times Magazine casually asked me, how many words do you think you published this year? And I thought, that's that's funny. And I added it up and it was like two novels worth. And I was like, maybe, maybe I should do that. <laughs> that's like when at some point I gave consideration to having probably written like 500,000 words about American Idol in my life and I know. And, that, and that didn't inspire any good thoughts on my part. So, <laughs> so good on you for making. <laughs> I read all of them. Just so you guys know, I read all of them. Entirely too many. They went into my answers. brain. So I want to go back to the meetings and I want to talk about, I want you to talk a little bit about the ones where people didn't get it. Sort yeah. of what the reactions to the book were, where someone told you, I love this about it, and your reaction was, yeah, you you didn't get my book at all. <laughs> yeah, so do you ever have that thing where you write something and people like it, but for the wrong reason? And there's no real way to be like, oh, you don't like this for the right reasons. This is, and there are people who read it and were like, I had a, I had a villainous, sister who's just like Rachel. And I really relate to that. And I was like, oh, okay. I don't even know if you're, you read coverage of this. You did not read this. Um, that was another thing is like the, like you could tell when people read coverage and when people read the book. Um, I didn't actually need people to read the book. I was just so, I was so fascinated. You know, my husband is a former variety reporter. I would hear about these things, these, 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 these bidding wars. 
And I was always fascinated by them. I actually, the one thing I got wrong about them was I thought they took place in a room. Like you sat, not with a bunch of people, but you sat in your agent's room and it was like, all right, I'm getting it. For, all right. I'm like, like almost like a real estate thing. I had seen that in real estate. Um, and, and when people were talking to me about it, a lot of them wanted to write it. Like, and a lot of them wanted to write it because, and they would tell me why they wanted to write it, like their feelings about wanting to write it. And I was like, that's, that's, it's, it's really about striving and alienation. And if you think it's about, they couldn't wait to make fun of people on the Upper East Side. They couldn't wait to, like some of some of the comments about Jewishness were were a little much. Th- there were things that they loved about it, and mostly it's a thing I run into a lot with a lot of, with things that I write, which is they thought it was funnier than it actually was. Like they they laughed a couple of times, and therefore they thought this other thing that was actually quite sad was funny. You know, like the low main sequence. They're like, we're gonna make it bi-. like. Some of them wanted to put it to the like, like what is that? That like, bump, bump. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. you know what I'm talking about. I'm sure, like, oh, that's a woman's nervous breakdown. You should be delicate with that. Um, and then, and then, and that was it. I was just listening, and it was so shocking to me. It's almost like I was listening to them like they were reviews. Like, and also I loved talking to them. I couldn't believe. You know, you never really talk to people about your work like this. Like, I've always been very much a story comes out and I'm already on my next story because I don't want the success or failure of that story to influence how I'm writing the next story. That's how I feel about things because I'm so I'm so worried about that. I'm so worried about freezing and I'm so worried about panicking and most of all, Again, we're in territory you did not express interest in. I do remember your initial question. But where where I think you run the risk when a story is successful of writing the next one in the same voice. And the next story doesn't always need the same voice. But again, question you did ask, it was really weird. And they were telling me, and some and also some of it was very compelling. And some of it was like, I would fall in love on a lot of phone calls. And then at some point you're like, it comes down to who do you want to continue talking to? The answer was like five people. But with Sarah and Susanna, I could not bear to never speak to them again. Like I could not manage a way to say, can we just be friends. But also, why would I? Susanna Grant, when I was, when I, Sarah Timberman, by reputation, but Susanna Grant, when I was young and trying to be a screenwriter, she wrote Erin Brockovich. And it kind of taught me, it was like this real sign of hope from the universe that you could write a muscular thing about a woman. It could be taken seriously. So I would say that and this is my perception from the outside, that the series is extremely similar to the book. Like, it's, it's very much along those lines. 
But you coming from the inside, I have to imagine that you have kind of a princess in the pea thing where where the little differences are the things that get under your skin to some degree. How similar or different do they feel to you? Not at all. I did like the whole thing was I look at it and I think I don't know if it's I mean, I hope it's good, but there is I am the least capable of telling you about its quality. I know that my only goal, because I've watched a lot of adaptations that change, you know, some of them change the ending. Some of them change something that was the only reason I liked the book. My goal was, like, I like a crowd pleaser. If if you liked this book, my goal was that you would like this series and that you would, find, like, also, this was the first time I did anything like this. Uh, it was... It was so much work. It was like when I describe it to my friends at the Times, it is like 72 election nights that never end all at once, but in perpetuity to the point where you're like, oh my God, people are aging and having babies and there might be a new governor. And and I can't even tell you. I'm I'm a person who subscribes to a paper a paper newspaper where I work. It was not on the day that Russia invaded Ukraine that I found out that Russia invaded Ukraine. It was a little bit after. I was like, Russia invaded Ukraine. What is going on? Is there a war? Are we at war? You are 15 hours a day. Like, I found the limits of what I was capable of doing, but all that energy went into, I look at it and I think this is so similar. Everyone looks like I thought they would. The only thing that's different, which is so interesting, the only thing that's different is that when you write something on paper, there's all this negative space around it. Um, you know, you write some of Toby's habits and his tics. And, but you don't write all of them. You only write what you think is going to be interesting. And then an actor shows up and has to do the whole thing, has to decide how he talks, even if you never described the talking. He has to figure that out. The production design, you write because you're like, from a poor neighborhood in Brooklyn and obsessed with money in some sort of wounded way that you are 47 years old now and don't appear to be getting over anytime soon. You write that she's very rich and then a production designer takes that sentence and that she had a mid-century modern um, aesthetic and builds a set that because I have not been around that many rich people. I was like, is this what it's like? You have a dressing room inside your your bathroom? Like, things that I couldn't even imagine. So there was this surprise to me, but it did not bother me. It delighted me because it was so shocking. And also, writing is so solitary. And I've very I've been so lucky to be very close with my editors. Um, and my editors like know that I just sort of like cling to them because this is such a solitary thing. And this was, it was like, I wrote this book 
and it had 350 best friends. And everybody wanted to do something in the service of, of my one thing. And it was so like, it's like when someone loves your child. It's like when a, when so, like a teacher takes a real interest in your child and you're so flattered and grateful. But the thing about the teacher is that at the end of the school year, you're not like, you know what? This isn't my child anymore. This is our child. I think of Fleischman is in Trouble, the TV show, as not mine. I think of it as ours in a way that I'm not saying just because I'm on a pad- on a podcast. Like there are things in there I was incapable of rendering. And I I can't believe, you know, I I I approve the credits. Like, you know, for every episode you have to approve the credits. My name appears comically like four times in every episode to the point where at the premiere the name stays static and just like the credit keeps changing four times over. And then I have a vanity card and I think, and everyone else's names, I mean, not everyone, but a lot of the people who like did really hard work, their names are are so small. And I think of it the same way I think of journalism. Like the fact checker is the reason I'm not in jail and you don't see his name anywhere. Yeah. They, they're in the masthead and very, very small. And yeah. like tiny and, and never attached to the story. It's like really, it's it's strange to me, the, the credit thing. As a former copy editor, I feel seen right now. So. Oh, I'm yeah. so glad. <laughs> <laughs> I say thank you on behalf like, of all of us. Thank you. I, I just, and, and shout out to the Hollywood Reporter Copy Desk, some of the best in the biz. Um, but I do want to go back to something that, that you said. Some of the best in the biz. <laughs> um, but going back to one of the things that you said, you know, obviously you, you said that you wanted the adaptation to be a crowd pleaser. But one of the things that I'm so interested in, you know, in, in the adaptation space, whether it's a comic book or a novel or whatever piece of IP it is, is, you know, we I've done so many interviews with showrunners that say, oh, you know, how do you, uh, what's your approach to this? And the first words that they, that nine times out of 10 that they say is, oh, it's a remix where, you know, sometimes these big things happen, but maybe it happens to a different character. And The Walking Dead, for, you know, is the is the thing that comes to the, you know, the top of my mind because, I mean, that, that was such a huge property and it went through a number of showrunners. And when you come in with someone new, you got to find out like how, you know, attached to the comic they are, right? Because this is, you know, at one point was the biggest show on television. But was there any kind of uh, discussion with either ABC Signature or the great execs over at FX, like Landgraf and company, about remixing this and not doing, you know, the the crowd-pleaser, you know, version of of the show? I'll answer that by saying two things. That first, I'll answer it backward. I'll say, first of all, um, I kind of sometimes think of myself as one of those dolls that if you pull the string, I, I, like the question you asked about, the the bidding war for some reason that I don't understand if in one week somebody asks me that question I'll answer it in this in the same words and a thing that was a source of in of of comic interest across the set was that when I was writing I didn't have to open the book I would I knew the order of events and I would write and it would be the same words from a book that I did not, I have not read since I was, since it was published. Like I am like a, I'm like a, a robot. Like I will like just answer here, like, like as if it's talk, as if, as if it's talking points. So I don't know that I was, I was learning so many new things. I don't know I was capable of doing any kind of remix. 
the people at ABC Signature and FX, like, it's funny, like, you hear all of these things, like, that people are creator-friendly. These people, like, the it, it is like their investors should know how e- the irresponsible amount of control they gave, like, literal nobody me over this. They, even when they had notes, they were suggestions. Nobody... This is a weird show, and nobody wanted to do anything except help me get it get it right. We lost some stuff. We didn't gain that much. But also, before they saw any scripts, you know, Sarah Timberman and Susanna Grant, like, can change. They were, like, really in it. They read every single version, every single, they remembered the last version. They could show you how to change the flow of a scene with three words, things I never, ever even considered. And those people, like I was, I said to John Langraff, like, you know, that fearless thing before FX, it's not because of the content. It's because like you give control to people like me. Like that to me is the bravest thing I've ever seen because any story I ever wrote, like even stories that my editors in chief were like, I don't know, fine, let's try it. Like the risk was probably a plane ticket and some other story they wanted me on. This is like a lot, this is a lot of money. I don't, but I guess I'll leave it to you guys, you're right. It's a great question. What if it should have been different? What if it should have been told differently? I guess the the thing I'll say is that the the Walking Dead comic is a is a finite thing at this point, right? Like they have cycled through all of that content and are now in their forty seventh season. I don't know. I remember interviewing Norman. Like, back at the beginning of my career, I wrote a 300-word thing on him for maybe GQ or details. It's been like 15 years since I've written a 300-word. I don't know how long that show's been going on. I didn't have that burden, though. Like, I had something called a limited series that you either could change or not. Sarah and Susanna very much thought you didn't need to add or take, take that much away that it was, it was what it needed to be. The, the voice of the book and also the series comes from Libby, the character played by Lizzie Kaplan. Yeah. When you started and approached the writing process, were you worried about the amount of voiceover that was required? And when in the process did you realize that Lizzie Kaplan was not only able to pull it off, but was able to make that an asset to the story? If you saw my first draft of a my first draft of the pilot, there are it goes on like there was a voiceover jag that went on. But I tried doing it without voiceover. And it's not that the voiceover is there for um to be the voiceover isn't there to tell the story. The voiceover is there so that the ending will make sense. Like it is, it is, it's like a really integral part of the entire experiment that somebody is telling you this story and you can't forget that somebody's telling you the story. I think 
a lot of people that I showed the pilot to, like, oh, I'm about to hand this in. They're like, you, you're, I don't think you're allowed to do voiceover like this. And when I handed it into Sarah and Susanna, they were like, okay, let's take it down by this. And I was like, I still don't think you're allowed to do that. The studio and the network were like, this is this is a lot of voiceover. What is it supposed to like remind? Like, is there is there like what what can you say to to comfort us about how much this, they didn't really say that, but like, what is the comfort for this much voiceover? And my aunt and and. And I said, I don't, I don't know. I just don't, I said I, the same thing. I think you need to land it. And they were like, that sounds right. And they were really supportive of it to the point where they would often ask for more. They loved Libby as a character. They wanted more. They loved the way her turns of phrase. And how did we know it would be Lizzie Kaplan? She is the person I pictured for this. And she had, she was, she's friends with Jesse Eisenberg. She had read the book. She'd written a letter to Sarah Timberman about how much she loved the book. She, Sarah Timberman was the executive producer of Masters of Sex. They'd worked together. I kept saying I wanted it to be Lizzie. And then one day we were trying to do some sort of proof of concept you know, we, we, the, everyone was thrilled. We cast her. And the question was always, is, does it work? There was always this idea that if, when we saw an episode rendered, if the voiceover didn't work, we could take it out or we could tone it down. I remember the first thing that she put on tape in her, she was in London, she did it into her iPhone. And it was this section of, it was this one sentence. And she said, and it, the sentence was, you have to understand I was never wild. And that's how I say that, right? This is a character written in my voice. You have to understand I was never wild. And then she said it, and I'll do an imitation of her doing it. She said, you have to understand I was never wild. And there was something about the way she said it where I knew that it was like, it doesn't have to sound like me. It has to sound great. And she could make it sound great. And the minute I heard that sentence, I burst into tears and that was it. Like that, like I, I never had a question about it again, but I guess I would ask you, do you think the voiceover works or is it like shocking or do you get used to it after a while? I think it works because of her. I think it, I think yeah. she does such a good job of embodying it and, right. and making the voiceover into a character, I think, which is, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily know if it would have worked with arbitrary actress X yeah. or Y. I don't but. know either. I don't know either. Cause she's so like, she's also so raucous. Like in the pilot, when she's describing Hannah's, how Hannah's, how, how Hannah says everything like, like um, lately she said everything like, like Toby was a fucking idiot. And he, and she said something and Lizzie says, you fucking idiot. Like in such a funny way. That I never, I never even imagined it. I, you know what I wish? I wish that when I was writing celebrity profiles, I understood how much of a transfer there is from the page to the actor. In this case, very much for the better. I wish I'd known, I, I think it took me seeing something I wrote and heard in my head 
and watching them do it to understand how profound it is and what a big part of what they do it is. And I regret not understanding that because that would have, that would have been a good question for me to ask. <laughs> One of the defining characteristics of the the main quartet, so Jesse Eisenberg, Claire Danes, Lizzie Kaplan, and um, I, I just want to call him Seth Cohen, but uh, I understand he has another name. Yeah, um, they don't pay, if you prefer. most people don't pay him anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Is that there? Is that they're all actors who audiences have have known since they were young, since they yeah. were all there, since their lives were all potential, and that's kind of the theme of the story. I'm curious whether that was something that you guys were looking for, or whether it was a pleasant side effect in the casting process. So there are two there there are two questions. There there's one pre question you could ask about this, um, and that is. If you have something with flashbacks, what's the age of actor you should be looking at? If we'd gone for, you know, middle age is its own thing, and people play different ages all the time. The one thing they had to be was similarly aged. We could have gone with people in their 50s. We could have gone with people in their 40s. I said, there's no way I'm hiring anyone for this who has not is not plus 40, like who has not woken up and stared down the barrel of the rest of their lives on their 40th birthday. Like, no one will understand that. Again, I'm an idiot who doesn't understand how acting works. Um, and the thing that we decided was that if we hired people in their 50s, for example, or their, you know, like 60s, no, like, like in that area, we would have to... Um, hire other people for their flashbacks because you could only do so much, right? With a wig, with lighting, with VFX. You really can only do so much. People, their postures change, you know, they move differently as they get older. Um, and then we sat down to, but I was willing, that seemed like a fine thing to do. There aren't that many flashbacks to when they're young. Um, but then I thought like, what an interesting meta thing to take people that you've seen grow up so that only when you remember that Claire Danes was one, only when you look at Claire Danes, who's playing a role, but you have a memory of it, of her being a child, and it will affect you as, and it will remind you that you too had been a child. You grew up with Claire Danes. Like if you make a show, you could make a show for everyone, you could write a story for everyone. You could write a book for everyone. But it probably won't be very good. If you do it for, like, just one group of people, I wrote this for people who were born in 1975 in October, you know, in New York. Like, I, like I wrote, like, I write it very specific. When I wrote magazine stories, it was only for my editor. Like, that's how I keep it in my head. It is actually wide, widely for other people, so please do check out FX's Fleischman is in Trouble, only on Hulu, November 17th. Um, the thing that happened was who, these characters were written very specifically. I could not think of other people that should play these roles. Jesse Eisenberg... I said, would be great to play this role, but he is too young. And then there was a pandemic and suddenly he wasn't too young anymore. Like the pandemic made him 
old enough. He like all he needed was two years, and he was fine. Um, every everyone was somebody who I didn't. There was no second person to play it. Like I didn't. I couldn't think of it. And I used to think that that was a shortfall of mine because I remember I was, you know, su- like I've been surprised at the casting from book to TV. But I understand that you have like in in other, but as a journalist, what, when I would write about shows, but like you know, you have to you have to sell a show. It's hard to it's hard to get people to watch things. People are famous for a reason. They're famous because they're good looking. They're famous because they're you know, like you have that. And I thought it was a shortcoming of mine that I could not think of other people to play these roles. But now I look at them, when I would look at them playing the roles, I think maybe I should just go into casting. Like, maybe I'm good at it. Maybe I'm, I mean, I think that they take this and they make it, they make it a good show. Am I, I mean, I don't even, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say that I think my own show, like, when I look at them, it's like the the collaboration thing. Like they did a great job. They are they are remarkable people. Every single yeah. one of them. You know, uh, Fleischman is a show about marriage and the differences of perception within married couples. And you know, of these eight episodes, seven of them were directed by husband and wife teams. When in the process did you first consider that to be a possibility? And what did that add? We, I, okay, so the way Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris came into it was that when maybe, I don't, I went, I remember where I was when I saw Little Miss Sunshine. I remember I was at the, I was at the landmark on Pico in Westwood. Just, cl- um, just closed down. I know, I heard. What? <laughs> what? I know, I was so upset. And I went home, and I usually care very much about screenwriters. I don't, I didn't ever think that much about directors. Um, I was pregnant. I remember, and I just was like, I cannot do anything anymore. I just have to go to movies now. And I went to see Little Miss Sunshine, and I went home and I Googled the directors. And I remember the picture, and it was the two of them on the road somewhere in their hats, because that's what they wear. And I felt like I had never found anyone who had the perfect tone other than them. And then... Ruby Sparks came along, and I loved Ruby Sparks so much that when I wrote Fleischman, I wrote it to the score of Ruby Sparks, like up and down and up and down, over and over. It's not even a very long score. And I would and I would do that. And I, when we were talking about directors, obviously we were all big fans of theirs. And we said, what if we just ask them just so we could get a no and move on? Like, like Sarah Timberman and Susanna Grant are very practical and very optimistic. And you don't see you don't see those two things together a lot. So they were like, why don't we just try it? They said yes immediately. And we would joke about how funny it was that they were that they were married and this was about divorce and it would be hilarious. And then Bob and Sherry, Robert Pulcini and Sherry Springer-Berman, were the directors, they had been doing successions, but also American Splendor, their, like, first movie that I saw, like, they're so able and tonally so able. And also, they're able to do the thing that you do on this 
third unit or the second unit, you know, the second, um, not unit, the, the second block of something, which is take on the, st- the stylistic um, flares of what the pilot directors have established. Those four worked together very well, and we would joke about it. But ultimately, the thing I learned was that, like, people, people who can be, who can work with their spouses that closely, because a director team is not a divide and conquer thing. It is them doing the same thing and moving as a unit the whole time. It's not an efficiency. It is like two people doing the same thing. They would speak for each other. They would use the we. They didn't have to discuss things before they expressed an opinion. And I was like, you know what? They, I don't even know how they understand this content. If it's about different perspectives, they appear to have the same perspective, but they liked the voice and I was lucky that they did it. It's a very weird coincidence that we would we would do the whole, because um, our third director was not a married couple, Alice Wu, we would say like uh, Bob and Sherry and John and Val and Alice, <laughs> like that was our that was our that was our crew. And we've talked a bit about sort of the big leap that you took uh, into writing for TV for the first time, but you also make your make your uh, TV acting debut here. Uh, you you have a, a you know very that. impressive cameo. How did that come about, and and how was that experience for you? Um. Th- Thank you for noticing. Um, we're we're talking awards now, so yeah, it's a, it's kind of a big deal. Um, what happened was, I'm actually in another scene, but you don't see me. Um, in the in the pilot, there's a bus. There there's a scene on a bus, and I am one of the people on the bus with Sarah Timberman. We are behind my parents who are on the bus. Um, Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris in Little Miss Sunshine have all four of their parents in a in a in the diner scene as background people, and they say they very much treasure that footage. And so we put my divorced parents onto the bus, and we sat behind them because there was no place to sit on the bus. So you don't see me, you can't see me. You can see Sarah a little bit, you can't see me. But in the last, there were a couple of times I was going to be a background person in the in a men's magazine in the men's magazine thing cuz I worked at a men's magazine but the only scene was like one of those meetings that they didn't really let women into but not only that something happened that day where I suddenly couldn't be there I couldn't be at the thing. So even though I was fitted and I was wearing like a 90s outfit, I couldn't do it. And also maybe was like horrified of the idea of showing like all, when you're on set all you do is eat fried food and wear big pants and like the idea of showing up as a person was not a thing I could handle. And then on the like one of our very last days of shooting it wasn't our last day of shooting. It was like third to last day. I think Sherry Springer Berman said, I think now is your time to get into this scene because we had, it was like an outdoor scene and I hadn't had the hair. Someone quickly did my makeup. I was wearing my own shirt. 
the costume designer approved it. And I thought they wouldn't see me. And then I ended up doing it. And now, can I tell you something? You do, ha- do you know how often you see an episode of television that you helped make? Like, through every rigor of it. I've seen every single episode, no joke, more than 150 times. I am sure of it. Because you have to, you know, your assemblies, rough assemblies, better assemblies, edits, 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 edits. Then you go through it for sound. Then you go through it for VFX. Then you go through it for lighting. Like, there's no end. Like, every, it's hilarious. Like, every time, there's, like, no more matter to check out. And yet, as we were talking, my inbox is filled with things I have to look at. Um, I, every time I see myself, I'm shocked. <laughs> Every time that camera pans down and I see myself, I'm like so surprised. I don't know. I don't know why. Thank you for asking about that. I was just thinking about why it's so surprising. (laughs) And we do like to end these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying outside of cuts of your own show? I am about to engage in a rewatch of Yellow Jackets because it is so good. I've taken to, for some reason, re-watching things a lot. I'm re-watching the third season of Succession. Um, I, I, the other day I started re-watching it because I missed Bob and Sherry. And um, what else? I might re-watch Severance now. Um, and I watch a 30 Rock every night the way some people like take a vitamin. <laughs> like I watch a 30 rock every night and then at the end of it, I'm sad that it ended, but I, then I start watching it again. <laughs> My husband and I have a hard time finding things to watch together. And I feel like I have forced upon him so many things over the years that I had to watch for stories. Like he's watched all of the Real Housewives of Los of Beverly Hills. I oh, I recently watched that season of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills because I have friends Anna and Rayhan and they watch it and I am always looking for a way to be part of a conversation. <laughs> and I don't want to be left out, so I watch it. I watch that show. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Happy. We appreciate it. Thank you. I'm a big fan of this podcast. Fleischman is in Trouble premieres on Hulu November 17th. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, you've got The Crown at Netflix, Tulsa King over at Paramount Plus, Mammals, and The English for Amazon. Dan, what you got? Phew. A lot of a lot of stuff, um, and unfortunately, because we're going to be off the next couple of weeks, you you won't get to hear my thoughts on Wednesday and a few other things that are embargoed. But maybe uh, maybe we'll catch up, and those will be covered in reviews on THR and in my now see this newsletter, etc. So uh, so nothing ever truly gets lost or missing, but there's only so much that we can cover in this segment. Yeah. And just different ways of of keeping in touch with what Dan's watching and and his thoughts on everything. Plus, you can follow him on the Twitter. And on the Mastodon, (laughs) where where I definitely have an account and definitely don't know what to do with it. Yeah, Um, I haven't cracked that one yet, Dan. I don't know if I'm ready for another one of those in my life. I cracked it as far as setting up an account and everything beyond that. Who knows? 
Um, so yeah, uh, hard to necessarily know where to start because there's so much darn stuff. Uh, let's let's start sort of in reverse order of of upcoming enthusiasm. Uh, because I'm noticing a lot of people saying saying mean things about poor James Corden, who all he ever did was be an awful person. Uh, and therefore, people not being enthusiastic about mammals, which is fine because it seems to be getting barely any promotion whatsoever from Amazon. And it's definitely a thing that exists. Amazon has a couple big shows premiering this week that I have seen no promotion for in my world. That does not mean that there isn't promotion for them in other worlds, but neither the mammal nor the English is getting promotion in my world, which is a little bit too bad. Because uh, the the first thing I'll say about mammals is I think James Corden is really good in this. And I think it, I think it requires turning off certain of your preconceptions about him. It also maybe requires remembering that before he became one of the more annoying uh, you know, personalities in late-night television, but still not in any way. I mean, he's not the most annoying person in late-night television with the name James, for heaven's sake. So, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but before all of that, he was a Tony-winning actor. The guy, at some point, knew how to act. Uh, and Mammals is probably a good vehicle for the things that he does because it's a very theatrical little show. It was uh, co-created and written entirely by Jez Butterworth, who wrote The Ferryman and uh, a couple other very, very acclaimed plays, uh, both Broadway and UK stage, uh, Jerusalem, I believe. Other big title for him. Uh, Ferryman is, I believe, the only one I've actually seen, but boy, that's a devastating and fantastic piece of theater. It is a show that is about a marriage that looks perfect on the surface, but turns out to be in decline. Uh, James Corden plays a chef who's about to open his first restaurant. He has a lovely French wife uh, played by Melia Kraling, uh, and she's pregnant, but then she has a miscarriage. And when he is using her phone to contact people to let them know the sad news, he, or rather she, gets a text from a lover named Paul. And James Corden's character goes a little bit nutty trying to get information about Paul. The cast also includes uh, Colin Morgan as uh, James Corden's character's best friend and the great multiple Oscar nominee and Golden Globe winner Sally Hawkins as uh, his sister. And it is a... It's such a simple, basic premise. Guy discovers his wife is having an affair, tries to get to the truth about it. It is significantly more complicated than that because it's it's a it's a very literary piece. It's a lot of motifs. It's a lot of callbacks. It's a lot of uh, running themes and gags and whatnot where you have to keep track of where the pieces are going and they don't necessarily make sense. And I feel like there will be a lot of people who will watch the first couple episodes be generally annoyed by James Corden. It's choice. Everyone's got their preference. I happen to think that that his slightly outsized performance is actually perfect for a slightly outsized piece of drama, so it works for me. And then won't get to see how anything pays off, which is what the second half of the series is about. It's about actually fulfilling those callbacks and and bringing the story around and trying to... I don't know, makes makes sense of modern love and all of that. 
And a lot of what happened in the second half of the show really worked fairly well for me. I, you'll watch the first three episodes, and if you check out, you will never have any idea of what Sally Hawkins was actually doing here, because she seems wildly overqualified for what is at least initially a, a third-tier character. But eventually, there are some payoffs to it. And I, I found it I found it reasonably satisfying because I was amused by its theatricality. I understand some people will not be amused by its theatricality. They will not be amused by James Corden's theatricality. And that's entirely reasonable. I'd also add that it's very, very similar to Fleischman is in trouble in terms of its structure, in terms of the kind of story it's attempting to tell about modern love happens that I think Fleischman is in trouble is a significantly better story. You just heard our uh, interview with Taffy. And uh, the thing that I find interesting about Fleischman is in trouble, I'm skipping ahead to a show that doesn't premiere until next week, but this is the only time I'll get a chance to talk about it. It's a very, very direct adaptation. We talked with Taffy about it, and you heard her talking about how similar or different it feels. It's very similar right down to dialogue, setups, structure, everything. But it comes across as differently, as very different because kind of the mystery of it somehow feels less central or less essential. Now, it happens that I liked the book very much, but the quote-unquote mystery of it was the part that I actually liked least. And so I kind of appreciated that it doesn't feel like this is as much hinging on getting to the truth or whatever as the first, as the book was. So uh, it is absolutely perfectly cast. You heard Taffy talk about her excitement about getting all of their first choice people. And, and I actually kind of believe that because it, it is absolutely a tremendous core cast. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg does exactly what a very, very prickly and, and only occasionally likable character is supposed to be. Uh, Claire Danes, for a long time, you wonder why she's here in kind of a tertiary role when she actually gets to, you know, showcase her character. I think she's spectacular. I think that Adam Brody is is great. It's it's one of his best recent adult performances. And then, as I, I said in the interview, I, I think Lizzie Kaplan is so wonderful here. I think she's wonderful as the voiceover narrator. I think she is wonderful when she gets to play the character who looks like the best friend, but really and truly is is kind of the protagonist of the story. I, th I think it's a really good performance. And speaking of people who uh, lots of viewers are likely to be pre-annoyed by, uh, Josh Radner plays Lizzie Kaplan's character's husband. And I think it is such a funny and almost subversive idea to have a TV show in which Josh Radner plays your least self-obsessed, least annoying character. I, that that makes me genuinely happy. And, and I like the work he does here because I think it's kind of against <laughs> against type to some degree. Anyway, so yes, that's why she was missing. So, okay, going back, the English, which I feel like really Amazon is not making it clear that they have a a new thoroughly badass six-episode Western starring Emily Blunt that is premiering on Friday, and I feel like people do not know. And this is ridiculous to me because Emily Blunt is so totally a star, and she is so totally excellent at playing badass, and she's excellent here. And 
the series itself is sometimes extraordinarily good. It is uh, created by Hugo Blick, whose credits include uh, the Maggie Gyllenhaal vehicle, An Honorable Woman, which I thought was really, really good. And he's he writes and directs every episode of the things he does. He is great with performances, and Emily Blunt is great. She plays a wealthy British socialite who comes to America in the 1890s seeking revenge for the death of her child. The specifics behind it are not specified for a long time. And this is another show that treats as a mystery something that doesn't necessarily need to be treated as a as a mystery. In any case, she runs into a bunch of people who want to kill her. And she runs into a helpful uh, U.S. Army soldier who's also a Pawnee by birth, uh, played by Chasky Spencer, who's also just great. And they make their way across the American Midwest of the 1890s, across these fantastic vistas. It's all shot in Spain, but beautifully so. And the dialogue is mostly really, really meaty and full of threatening back and forths. The direction is is beautiful, just one glorious vista after another. It The story is, and this is a little bit like mammals in this respect, it's a simple story that in the way it's told ends up being more complicated than it needs to be. And the third or fourth episodes, my brain kind of tuned it out a little bit. It, it became a lot of people speaking in mumbled accents uh, with facial hair who I stopped being able to tell apart because lots of them weren't characters. And I, I did kind of stop caring for a couple episodes. And then the fifth and sixth episode, I started caring again. They're wonderfully violent, a little bit grotesque. It takes on almost horror-infused elements in those episodes, and I, I liked the tonal change, and I liked where the story resolved in its last couple episodes. So I think there's there's a ton worth watching here. I think it begins tremendously well. I think it ends very well. It does have lulls in the middle, so just be prepared for that. Uh, let's see. What else we got? Tulsa King. It premieres on uh, on Sunday. And um, yeah, it premieres on Sunday. And a lot of the stories that everyone's been writing and posting, including on Hollywood Reporter, a great story by uh, James Hibbard, talks about the speed with which Taylor Sheridan and Terrence Winter wrote the first episode of Tulsa King. And uh and they've said, and of course, it's an overstatement to say such things, but they still wanted to talk about it, that the pilot was originally written in a day. The the somewhat sad thing is you can kind of tell. <laughs> it it absolutely feels like <laughs> a it feels like someone had a great idea and they basically took the path of least resistance way to tell it. So the great idea is wouldn't and it be so funny? So it's a napkin pilot. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's it is whatever the simplest, most basic way to tell this, that's what it is. And really the first kind of couple episodes are. And and I like and I like the elevator pitch. I like the napkin pilot version of it. It's uh Sylvester Stallone plays a uh, you know, mobster who was a capo back in the old days and he spent 25 years in jail refusing to name names he gets out and his quote-unquote reward for what he did is he gets sent to open up shop in tulsa why tulsa no legitimate explanation is given but basically somebody thought it would be a funny place to drop sylvester stallone in and they're not wrong 
just so much of the first two episodes, which are all I've seen, are just pure cliches. The uh, the mobster stuff is just all familiar second tier soprano stuff. Terrence Winter, who who co wrote the series, ran the series. He knows better. There there's no way he doesn't know better, and none of it is interesting. And then the other half of the show is a lot of because Sylvester Stallone is both old and his character is recently out of jail. There's a lot of, oh, the modern world is confusing for this character. He doesn't understand Uber. He has a whole rant about kids today and their pronouns. It, there's so much of that. And that's the kind of thing that I expect from like NBC's Lopez versus Lopez. It's not what I expect from a a prestige streaming drama from the acclaimed creator of blah, 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 uh, which is all too bad because I do think Sylvester Stallone is actually pretty good here. I, I think it's a, I think it's a, a more comfortable comedic version of Sylvester Stallone than sometimes we see. And I think the supporting cast is, is very, very good. You have Andrea Savage, you have Martin Starr, you have Garrett Hedlund, uh, over on the mobster side of things, you have Dominic Lombardozzi with a ridiculous hairpiece and Vincent Piazza, who was in Boardwalk Empire, which Terrence Winter also co-created and ran. Uh, but eventually the show will have to get past the the elevator pitch version of the story, the napkin version of the story, the I wrote the script in one day version of the story. Eventually somebody is going to have to actually put development into this and flesh it out and make it in some way original and not a hodgepodge of cliches so yeah so but from uh king of tulsa to the last thing i'm going to talk about today that would be the queen of england and that would be the fifth season of the crown which is now out everywhere and it is the second generational reboot of the show uh, and so now you have Imelda Staunton taking over for Claire Foy and taking over for Olivia Coleman. You have Jonathan Price stepping in as Prince Philip, uh, Leslie Manville stepping in as Princess Margaret, Dominic West as Prince Charles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Elizabeth Debicki as as Diana. And um, I, what I'm going to say is I think this was probably my least favorite of the crown seasons so far. And I, sometimes I do mean that as a, as a criticism, I would say that the first five or six episodes are really hit and miss. They, they focus way more on Charles and Diana than it turns out. I actually care about, I, I just feel like a part of what was so good about the first four seasons, maybe even more particularly the first three seasons was how it took partially forgotten stories that were a part of the tapestry of Queen Elizabeth's life, but weren't the big headlines all of the time. And it was the thing that Peter Morgan, to me, did best was choose which moments he wanted to capture and flesh out, which moments he wanted to say uh, were um, important enough for episodes. And I think for the first four or five episodes of this season, his instincts aren't as good. I think the second half of the season is much better. I think that the episode that focuses on, spoiler alert, Charles and Diana's divorce. <gasps> Sorry, uh, I just ruined history for you. Uh, I hate to tell you, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, history. 
I, I thought it was I thought it was wonderful actually. So uh, I thought it was handled beautifully. I thought that there are scenes with Dominic West and Elizabeth Debicki, which are basically Peter Morgan writing stage shows about Charles and Diana. Uh, I thought some of that stuff was was really beautiful, and I, I think that Elizabeth Debicki. I wasn't interested when she was playing the frazzled, depressed, bored version of Diana. But when she plays the version of Diana that's, okay, I see the light at the end of the tunnel. How can I get, what is my life after this? I thought she played that wonderfully. And, and that to me is great. Amel de Staunton is, is, is superior. I would say Queen Elizabeth is a secondary character this season. She was close to a secondary character last season also. I, I think she's entirely a secondary character to Charles and Diana this time around. I think Jonathan Price is very good. And just a lot of the the supporting people are good. Johnny Lee Miller is surprisingly good as Prime Minister John Major. Uh, also in the process, making anyone who was more youthful when hackers came out feel really, really old. But that's just, that's just where we are. Um... Yeah, so uh, do I think it's a bad season of The Crown? No, not not by any stretch of the imagination. Do I feel like it's a lesser season of The Crown? Perhaps, yes, uh, but it closes strong, which to me is ultimately rather important. So, yeah. Yeah. And you can actually go back and listen to our interview with The Crown creator Peter Morgan back when we were babies in episode 48 from November 22nd, 2019. Obviously, lots has changed, but it's still a great interview to discuss about his, how he makes his choices, the research that goes into everything, et cetera. So it's a, one of our better interviews. Absolutely. Definitely a, definitely a favorite. And, and as you say, everything he said in the interview is still relevant because we were talking about his process as much as anything. So... Uh, so yeah, so so that's the crown. So uh, as the quick recap goes, uh, Amazon has both mammals and the English. I like them both. Uh, they're both to me worth checking out. If you can't get past your hatred for James Corden, I understand that. Just watch the English then instead. That's totally fine. Tulsa King, it might be a good show someday. It definitely feels like a hastily created and rushed show now. Uh, Fleischman is in trouble. I loved the performances, and I think to some degree it works better than the book. And The Crown on Netflix, a lesser season of The Crown, still pretty good stuff. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We will be back December 2nd following an extended vacation for Thanksgiving. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. That way, you never need to worry about when we're coming back. We're coming back when you get the podcast. <laughs> if you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review-y thing. Those suckers help spread the word of mouth. We're always happy to chat with you guys on Twitter if you want to let us know what's working, what isn't working, etc. But if you have actual questions for future mailbag segments, email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the numeral 5, at thr.com. Until next month, Leslie. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. <laughs>